Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 33 to 42 this morning. While you're flipping to Mark 9, 32 to 33 to 42, I uh, will read to you from Matthew chapter 10. We are working our way through the book of Matthew. Last several weeks, we've had a series of messages that have come from different, different gospels. Um, and the reason for that is because we're looking at the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, specifically the 12 apostles. And uh, we're considering their lives and the, and the way that they lived, and we're trying to just sort of glean all that we can out of these 12 men so that we can see our place among them. They're not superhuman. They're not spectacular. These weren't guys that were just super pious, sort of religious, super spiritual guys. As we look at them, we see that they're like us, exactly like us in every way. And yet these 12 men, minus Judas, these 11 men, with Paul, put it back to 12, um, turn the the world upside down. So I will read to you from Matthew chapter 10, just to continue to remind you of where we're at in the text, because we are working our way through Matthew. And then I will read to you from Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 42. Uh, That's the text we're looking at today as we consider the apostle John. So Matthew chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Protos, the number one, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Poor guy is always known as Peter's brother. James, the son of Zebedee, who is a wealthy businessman, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, we're going to be considering the Apostle John today, and as it has been our practice the last couple of weeks, uh, we have looked at a significant text that deals with one of the, uh, with, with that Apostle in particular. Now, with John, it's pretty easy. There's only one account in all four Gospels, aside from the Gospel of John, where he sort of vaguely alludes to himself throughout that Gospel as the Apostle who loved Jesus. There's only one account, particularly in the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where John takes sort of a front and center position in the narrative, and that's right here in Matthew chapter 9. So we're going to begin Matthew chapter 9, verses 33 to 42. You might be saying to yourself, why is Josh reading Matthew 33 to 42, I've got uh, several different uh, little headlines here in my Bible, and these look like radically different sections. And the reason for that is because in this particular account, as the disciples are arguing over which one of them is the greatest, Jesus uses a child as an object illustration to answer the question of what makes us truly great. And if you look carefully at the text, you'll find in verse 42, that's where it ends. He concludes, he starts with talking about a child, and he concludes with talking about a child. And this child is mentioned in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So that's where the text actually ends. So I know in your Bibles it might have different headlines and different things like that. It's important to remember all of that is added by translators. That's not a part of the original scripture. So with that said, we're going to be looking at verses 33 to 42. If you would, please read with me. We will read, and then we will pray, and then we will get to work. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? 
But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you so much for your love for us. Father, as we look at all these different apostles and as we encounter all of the different ways that you taught them, the ways that your son instructed them and discipled them, Father, we would become aware that these guys are just like us, that we are just like them. And that the lessons that Jesus is teaching these men as he prepares them to turn the world upside down. These are lessons for us. Help us, Lord, to understand as we look today at the life of John what exactly he learned here in this encounter with Jesus. Help us to understand what real greatness is. Help us to desire to be great. Father, I think that if there are any here today, Lord, that don't have any aspirations or any desires to greatness, I think it would be good, Lord, for them to understand that that's your desire for them. Show it to them. Help them to see that you want them to be great. Help them to understand what it means to be great. And then enable them, empower them, Lord, to be great. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We're looking at the Apostle John. As we've mentioned in weeks past, he's the brother of James. They're both sons of this man named Zebedee. Zebedee is a wealthy businessman. He has a prominent fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. And as I mentioned last week, Zebedee is a connected man. He's well-connected with the religious leaders. Uh, When Jesus is crucified, John and Peter follow Jesus at a distance. Jesus is taken into the high priest's home, and John has a relationship with with the girl who is guarding the gate to the home. And because he is familiar to the house of Caiaphas, to the house of Annas, he is able to persuade the girl to let him in. Well, now, Caiaphas, Annas, these are the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. These guys are on par with prime minister or president. And to know them, well, that's saying something. And so it's quite clear as we look at the text of Scripture that in some capacity, the house of Zebedee was well-known, if not possibly related, to the high priests. As we considered a couple of weeks ago, Zebedee being a wealthy businessman, extra-biblical sources suggest that he was a prominent 
donor, a wealthy supporter of the synagogue system in Israel. And so it may be that because of his generosity for supporting the building and the construction and the financing of synagogues, that perhaps they had some sort of influence in the high priest's house. We don't know that for a fact. At least we don't know that from the Scriptures. But we do know, undisputably, that there was a relationship, a close one there, such that John, during a very, a very important and illegal trial that was taking place in the middle of the night, was able to get in and sneak Peter in with him. So they were wealthy. They come from a wealthy family, and they're connected. They have political connections. And yet these guys, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they're lovers of God. They're spiritual people. For all the wealth and for all the opportunity and for all of the prestige they had with their connections and their father and the businesses that he owned and managed, they left all of that aside. And they followed John the Baptist first and Jesus second. And as we consider from the Gospel of John, we know that he was committed to two things. Love and truth. Love and truth. And these are two things that he emphasized throughout all of his letters. From the beginning, we see him as a spiritually aware man who's seeking to follow John the Baptist. John the Baptist points out Christ immediately as a result of his love for the truth and his desire to know the Messiah. John leaves, uh, John leaves John the Baptist and both him and his brother Andrew immediately become followers of Jesus. And we find afterwards, after he's followed Jesus for three years, as he's engaging in his pastoral ministry, writing letters to the churches, we find that over and over and over again as he's talking to his, these churches, he uses a couple of terms quite a bit. Love, truth, and children. If you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you will find that the phrase little children or children throughout those three letters is used a combined 17 times. Over and over and over again as he's talking to, and these aren't literally little children. These are grown men and women. They're members of the churches, probably in Asia Minor. This is probably the destination where 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were sent. So as he's writing to churches full of all kinds of men and women, both young and old, he refers to them as little children. That's a a frame, that's a phrase of endearment that he uses over and over and over again. And, and the question is, where did John learn to use that expression as he's writing to these churches? As he's emphasizing love and truth repeatedly throughout 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, where does this idea of love and truth and little children, where do all these ideas come from? They come from this passage right here. So look with me in Mark chapter 9, verse 33. They come to Capernaum. Verse 33 says, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, this is referencing Jesus, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? He knows what they were discussing. He wants to see who's going to be man enough to admit what it is that they're talking about. They're bragging to each other and arguing with each other over which of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So they're walking along. They get to Capernaum. They enter into the house there. Jesus turns around and says, hey, what are you guys talking about when we were on the road? And they just kind of look at each other. And the text says they were silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So he asks them, what are you guys talking about? They say, mm. 
and says, all right, let me just tell you who the greatest is going to be. And it's one of those moments where you just know, yeah, he's, he's Jesus. Like, we should have just been honest and said, yeah, we were arguing over which one of us was going to be the greatest. If Jesus asks you a question, you can play mum all you want. He's not really asking you the question because he doesn't know the answer. Anytime you encounter Christ asking a question in the scripture, it's for our benefit. And so it doesn't really behoove us to stay silent. You feel ashamed at the answer that's coming? Might as well just confess it and get it over with. So he sits down in verse 35, and he calls the twelve, and he says to them, if anyone would be first. Now their argument here is, who among us is going to be the greatest? Who among us is top dog? Who among us is going to be the first in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus knows that that's what they're arguing about. And so when he says to them, if any of you wants to be first, and now he's going to begin to explain to them how they can be first. Now that's significant. It's not wrong to desire to be great. It's not wrong to want to be first in the kingdom of heaven. Nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus ever rebuke any of these 12 guys for any desire to greatness. Nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus say, you shouldn't aspire to do great things for God. Nowhere in the Gospels he says, you know what, you just need to live a humble life and just go disappear in the shadows somewhere. That is never his teaching. That is never Christ's expectation. And there is no rebuke and there is no failure, there is no shortcoming for desiring, having the desire to do great things, to be great in the kingdom of heaven. But I need to caution you, listen, some of you kind of scratching your head getting ready to nod off and you're starting to shift into sleepy mode. Listen, this is important. There is a difference between being great and being known as great. Hear that. Additionally, there is a difference between being great and desiring to be greater than someone else. You can be great, and greatness is good. And as you consider yourself in the eyes of the Father, and you say to yourself, Lord, tell me, am I doing great things? Am I doing good? Having that conversation is encouraged by the Scriptures. This is what is expressly forbidden. Where you look at the guy next to you, and you say, you know what, I am greater than you. I am better than you. And I do more than you. There's nothing wrong with being great. But there is something wrong with wanting everyone to know that you're great. And there is something wrong with wanting everyone to know and to believe and to agree with you that you are greater than this person. That's exactly what Jesus is going to explode in his very next statement. Those two false ideas. Nothing wrong with being great. There's everything wrong with being known as great or being greater than your brother or wanting to outshine or show up your brother. Look what he says here. If anyone wants to be first, if anyone wants to be great, good, here's how you do it. He must be last of all and servant of all. That turns greatness completely upside down. 
if you want to be great, and if you are great, do you need to be involved in an argument about how great you are? Do you ever see the Prime Minister of Canada out on the campaign trail saying, hey, how's everybody doing? I'm the Prime Minister. Did you know that? Of course he doesn't say things like that. It's kind of understood. He's there, he's campaigning, you know who he is. And if a prime minister needs to tell you, hey, just so you know, I'm the prime minister, he probably isn't that great of a man. Great men don't need to convince you of their greatness, and great men don't need to remind you of their greatness. As far as Jesus is concerned, great men aren't even concerned with those things. You know what a great man is concerned with? A great man is concerned with the well-being of others. A great man is not thinking about himself. A great man is not overly worried about himself. A great man, his focus, his drive, the things that matter to him are the well-being of other people. And he wants to serve them so that they can be better off. In other words, a great man is someone who is concerned with blessing other people. That's Jesus' response. Turns greatness upside down. To illustrate it, in verse 36, he says, it says they took a child. The Greek makes it clear this is a small child. It's not uh, like a teenager or anything like that. It's probably someone, maybe not a toddler, maybe like a five, six, seven-year-old kid. Takes a small child and he puts him in the midst of them. Now, this is women's work. I, I don't use that expression for myself. I'm just saying this is how they would have understood it. In this day and age, in this culture, small children are tended to and managed by the women. To look after kids, to change their diapers, to feed them, to watch over them. As far as this culture is concerned, as far as first century Judaism is concerned, that's women's work. That's beneath a man. It's not a man's job to look after that. And so Jesus, as he's talking to them about what constitutes real greatness, he begins to take a child and to bring this child into the midst of all of these guys. And of course, they're like, hmm, I wonder what he's doing here. Like, this is totally foreign. And you see evidence of this throughout the scriptures. Repeatedly, there are children hanging around and the disciples are never concerned with these guys, which is interesting because last week when we were looking at Andrew, uh, two weeks ago when we were looking at Andrew, when he grabs the boy with the five loaves and the fishes and brings him Jesus. That's startling for that reason. Jesus is going to tell them what constitutes greatness. And he puts this guy, this, this child, in front of them. And immediately they're starting to scratch their heads. What's the deal here? And his statement is, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but the one sent me, which is God the Father. Follow the connection. When a child comes forward and you look after that child and you care for that child, okay, Jesus uses the expression to receive. There's an idea within the text that you're embracing the burden and the responsibility of providing and caring for that child. Everything that's wrapped up in looking after this small child. And a person takes on the needs, as insignificant as you might think they are, when a person takes on the needs of a small child, 
the smallest, weakest, most helpless person in a society. When you care for that child, and you're doing it with an understanding of who Christ is and how Christ loves that child, Jesus' teaching here in this verse is that you're not caring for the child. You're caring for God the Father, the most powerful, most significant, most important person in the entire universe. You want to be great, Bridge Baptist Church? You want to be known as great in God's eyes? Women's work. What we often think of as trivial and insignificant, as not important. Let's just push these kids off, off to the side here. Let's put them off into daycare. Let's send them away. They're making a lot of noise. They're distracting us. Uh, scripture says if you want to be great, your concern for the smallest and most insignificant member within any given society, and you love that person, you take on all the responsibilities of that child, it's no different than if you were caring for God himself. You want to be great. Jesus' teaching is you serve those things which are not prominent or applauded or popular. And you serve those people and those causes which don't get a lot of recognition, don't have a lot of notoriety, but you do it knowing that they're important to the Father. Jesus' first teaching, you want to understand what greatness is. He is saying to us, your perspective is irrelevant. The question you need to ask yourself when you say, I want to be great, is, are you serving those things which are important to the Father? John objects. And the objection is a part of the text. That's why before I began this message, I showed you where the bookends were. John says to him, teacher, you need to understand, the Apostle John, he's hearing this statement. You want to be great, you take on the needs and the cares and the concerns of the smallest person, the weakest people in your society, and you do it knowing that God loves those people. You take those responsibilities on, and John says, you know, I've got a couple of objections here. We saw a man casting out demons in your name. Now, wiping a baby's bottom or casting out demons, which one do you think is the cool-looking one? Yeah, okay. I mean, if you have to be involved in a ministry, which one do you want to be involved in? Wiping a baby's bum. I've had two of my own. They can get quite, that could be, you know, a challenge, you know. There's a little, you know what I'm talking about, Okay. <laughs> Wiping a baby's bum, or crazy guy freaking out, ripping things apart, breaking chains, and you're like, in Jesus' name, I cast you out. And he's like, whoa, I'm better now. That's cool. That's awesome. That makes you stand back and press. You're like, wow, that's awesome. So John's statement, he's hearing Jesus, and Jesus is like, you know what? What you guys perceive as 
women's work, that's what's important. That's what constitutes greatness. And John is hearing that, and he's like, okay. Now, there's no understanding in this text that Jesus spoke about this incident beforehand. And so John is sort of hearing that Jesus' concern isn't necessarily for the flamboyant or the extravagant, but for the weak and the helpless. And John's like, yeah, like we, we rebuked this guy that was doing this stuff. So he says to Jesus, you know what? We, we rebuked a guy that was casting out demons in your name. And we stopped him. We tried to stop him. Why? Because he was not following us. So Jesus' statement is, if you want to be great, take care of children. And John's statement is, yeah, we stopped a guy because he wasn't doing what we're doing. He wasn't following us. Now, that's an interesting objection. And the, the question that presents itself to my mind right off the bat is, why wouldn't you be following Jesus? I mean, you, you're casting demons out in his name. He's doing all of these miracles. He's feeding people. He's healing people. He's doing all kinds of cool stuff. He's preaching some real powerful, hard-hitting messages. He is challenging the religious establishment. This guy is cool. And I'm going out, and I'm actually casting out demons in his name. Why, if I am casting out demons in his name, am I not following after Jesus? That's just, that's just weird. I mean, doesn't that strike some of you as a little peculiar? I can't answer that question. I don't know why he's not following Jesus. John's statement is, we try to stop him because he wasn't following you. And Jesus' statement here is, don't stop him. Don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Now, on its surface, the implication seems to be this. You don't have to follow after us to be honoring the Lord. And in fact, you could take that to the extreme that it doesn't even really matter who or where you're going or what you're following as long as individually you are serving the Lord. Do you think that's the message that John got? There's a couple of problems with that. Number one, look back at Mark 8.34. If the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach to John is it doesn't matter where you go or what you do as long as individually you do a good job of representing me, if that's the lesson that Jesus is teaching, I don't think John learned that lesson very well. It also seems to be a little bit at odds with what Jesus had said previously. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, it says, In calling the crowd to him, with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Those last three statements are all in the imperative. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. So even Jesus' teaching prior to this text doesn't seem to mesh well with what this text is saying. But more than this, in the Gospel of John, as the Apostle John is writing many, many, many years later, in John chapter 12, verse 26, it says, If anyone serves me, this is Jesus talking, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
So even within the Gospel of Mark, Jesus seems to be suggesting something slightly different. John, writing many, many years later, seems to be suggesting something completely different. And then in 1 John, writing to a church that has just endured a church split. A church has gone through division. And within this church, you had groups of people there that were arguing, that were heated at each other. And John makes a statement in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, that is, if they were the same as us, if they agreed with us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so John's statement in 1 John is that if you're the same as this group here, if you hold to the same things, if you believe the same things, you will be a part of this group here. So Jesus' statement in Mark is kind of interesting. It's one that doesn't have an easy sort of synthesis within the other scriptures. When he makes a statement, don't rebuke the guy casting out demons in my name, he's not implying that who you follow or where you go or whom you associate with, he's not implying that those things are irrelevant. Look back at the text a little bit more closely. Look at what John says. He says to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons. Woo, whiz bam, flash, flamboyant ministry. We saw someone casting out demons, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Who's the us? Jesus doesn't appear at least as far as the disciples are concerned, to be aware of this incident that took place. They haven't talked about this previously. His teaching and his statement is, if you want to be great, serve the weaker ones. And John's statement is like, yeah, and we had this guy, and he was doing some stuff in your name, and we stopped him. And Jesus' response is, don't stop him. And his statement was, the reason we stopped him was because he wasn't following us. But Jesus wasn't there, apparently, when they had this rebuke. Which means that what John is saying to Jesus is the guy casting out demons wasn't following us, the twelve. Which means that when Jesus responds to John, his statement to John is basically, hey John, without me, there is no us. And the only us that there is, is the us that has Christ as the Lord. His statement is, Jesus, we stopped him, we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. And Jesus' response was, don't do that because no one who does mighty work in our name doesn't say that. And no one who does mighty work in our name will soon be afterwards able to talk bad about us? No, there's no reference to an us in Jesus' response to John. John says, we try to stop him, and Jesus' statement was, You tried to stop him focusing on yourselves. No one who does a mighty work in my name, that is by the authority of Christ, will then soon afterward be able to speak bad about Christ. Which means if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, your perspective, small children, insignificant, not worth your time. That's wrong. 
you need to consider God's perspective. And John's objection is, yeah, yeah, but even the guys that were doing the flamboyant things, we tried to stop them because they weren't following us. And Jesus just emphasizes it again. It's not about us. It's about him. It's about what he thinks. It's about what he cares about. This guy wasn't following us. Who are you, John? Who makes John, John? In what regard is John anybody? If the Apostle John is anybody, and if he's anybody we should be paying attention to, if he's anybody we should be listening to, it is simply by virtue of the fact that John was called by Jesus. The only significance in John is the significance that Jesus sees in him. Do you want to be great? Do you? How do you measure that? How many people follow you on Twitter? Come on now. You laugh, you chuckle. Let's be honest. Facebook. How many likes, you know, little clicks you get on? I know this is how it is, okay? You're looking at me like, oh, that's not, no, come on now. Like, I know how this is. How do you measure your greatness? Facebook friends, Twitter followers, in the world of pastoral ministry, you measure greatness by how many people uh, comment on blog posts, follow your podcast feed, invite you to speak at missions conferences. I'm sure in your world it's the same way. When there's a big project around the office, who does the boss turn to? When there's a social event in the neighborhood, who do all the moms in the neighborhood turn to to organize the, the thing, the block party? Is it you? Are you the go-to girl for that sort of work? You know? And a lot of us find our significance in those things. In other words, we don't enjoy being great so much as we enjoy being known as a great person. We don't enjoy greatness as it's measured from God's perspective so much as we enjoy greatness as it's measured from the world around us. And what's more is the longer you live in being known as great, the longer you live in that world of being known as great, the more important the question becomes, who am I greater than? Jesus' response to John pretty straightforward. He's doing a good work in my name. If he's doing it in my name, then he won't be able to soon afterward talk bad about me. Well, where do you come into the picture, John? Now, what's fascinating is that Jesus brings John into the picture. The very next verse, he says, for the one who is not against us is for us. John's a nobody. But if John will orient his focus on Christ and what Christ thinks, then Christ brings John into that group. As long as we are properly oriented on Jesus Christ and what's important to him and what matters to him, as long as his concerns reign supreme in our lives, we are blessed. 
and that we are great because Jesus says we are with him. That's what greatness is. That's what should matter most to us as a church. That's what needs to matter most to you as an individual. That's clearly what the text is saying. Now he fleshes this out a little bit further. The one who is not against us is for us. Now he's going to, in verses 41 and 42, he's going to have two specific points which need to be held in tension. One's a positive, one's a negative. It's an affirmation and a denial. The first one is the affirmation. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, because in your life the thing that makes you great is that you want to see Jesus Christ exalted. If a person gives you a cup of water because you're focusing on Jesus Christ because you belong to Jesus Christ, that person will never lose his reward. That's what Christ says there. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose your reward. He will not lose his reward. So if you get a cup of water, something as small, as insignificant as a cup of water, by virtue of the fact that you exalt Christ in your life, Jesus' statement is to that person who rewards you because you belong to me, and I am number one in your life, that person I will not forget, even the smallest thing that he did for you. That's pretty cool. For every blessing that is given to you, by virtue of the fact that you're a Christian, by virtue of the fact that you love Jesus, a father never forgets it. And he promises to pay it back. Knowing that the smallest, most insignificant people are of the most importance to the Father, the creator of all the universe, knowing that to receive small, helpless children to care for their needs is the same as caring for the creator of the universe, knowing that the smallest, most trivial task that we engage in, from giving a small child a cup of water to wiping his bum, knowing that those tasks will be rewarded in eternity. Where do you think our focus should be as a church? Standing up front, leading worship, having everybody pat us on the back because we nailed that guitar riff in the middle of the second song. Or me, for example. Pat me on the back, good message today, Josh, way to go, that was really powerful, really convicting. Are those the things that are most important? Does standing up front make you great? Because see, we think that way. The Twitter followers, the podcasts, the standing up front, the Facebook likes, the leading the guitar, all this kind of cool stuff, that's what makes a man great. That's what his peers look upon him and they see him and they say, that's a good guy, he's doing good stuff up there. And the scripture says, that's asinine. Because all of that is based upon other people's perspectives of what constitutes greatness. And over and over and over again, Jesus is saying, it's my perspective that matters. And no one else's. Which means that if we really hear what Jesus is saying to us in this text here, the smallest, most insignificant jobs should have equal priority in our lives as what gets the most recognition 
and the most honor. You should not struggle to find volunteers to work in the children's ministry. We should not struggle for these things. We should not struggle to find people who are willing to help out in the youth ministry, give rides to teenagers on Tuesday night. We should not struggle for these things. And yet we do. I think that the reason we do is because when we look at what makes a person great, we're not looking at it from the Father's eyes. Application point number two, next verse. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, be better if you never existed. That's my own paraphrase. It literally, what he says is it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. I mean, Jesus' statement here is if you're going to cause a child, if you're going to cause the weakest, most insignificant person who believes in Christ to sin, you're going to provide some temptation in his life, you're going to harm his walk with Christ in some way, you're going to disrupt his faith, make it hard for them to get to youth group on a Tuesday night. Make it difficult for them to grow in their walk with Christ. Not model personal family devotions, not teach your child how to read the Bible for themselves, not show them how they can have a personal relationship with the Father, not make those things a priority in your life, just hindering them from growing closer to the Lord. This is a powerful and convicting statement, and it should hit us between the eyes. Those small, insignificant people that we stick in front of the TV because we don't want to deal with them, those small, insignificant people that we just want to shove a video game in their hands so they'll be quiet and go away? Those small, insignificant people, as far as God is concerned, if they believe in Him, when we serve them, we're serving Him. And when we shove them in the corner, guess who we're shoving in the corner? We're shoving Him in the corner. We're denying Him. And as far as the Father's concerned, if you want to shove Him in the corner probably be better if you just committed suicide. He won't forget it. That is exactly what Jesus is teaching. Greatness is good. Let's all be great. Let's know what that is. It doesn't come from the flamboyant, extravagant, wonderful things. It comes from doing whatever it is that the Father and the Son have called you to do, valuing their perspective more than your own. Trusting in their assessment of your greatness, not the world around you. And at the end of the day, if you do what is important to the Father and you serve people who belong to Christ, you will be rewarded. And if they're too much of an inconvenience and you shove them in the corner, it will not be forgotten. That's what the text is saying. And John heard that message loud and clear. As I said at the beginning, in his three letters, as he's writing to all of the churches, when the Apostle John is speaking to the churches in Asia Minor, do you know the expression that he uses when he talks to them? Either children 
or little children. You know, and if someone were to say to me, hey, little child, how's it going? I would probably be weirded out by that, as I'm sure you would be too. If you were to come up to me like, hey, little guy, how are you? And you were to pat me on my back, I'd be like, I'm taller than you, you know, like, why are you doing? That's what my response would be, and I'm sure that's what most of your responses would be. That's not the meaning of the expression. That's not why John uses that expression when he's writing to churches in Asia Minor who have senior citizens as well as young, small children there. What John is doing isn't so much for their benefit as it is for his own benefit as an apostle. John knows everybody is worthy before the Lord. Those who belong to Christ, they are there for him to serve. When he calls them little children, it isn't that he hasn't learned this lesson about what constitutes greatness. It's that he has learned it carefully. He uses the word little children not to be insulting to senior citizens, but to remind himself in the same way that I'm serving elderly folks. I need to be equally concerned about younger folks. And do you know what mattered most to John? What mattered most to John, regardless of who he was serving, was truth and love. Now, I'm looking at my watch, I'm thinking, holy cow, it's 1225, and I'm just entering the second stage of my sermon. (laughs) Because I love you in truth, I will land the plane early today, but we'll be coming back to this next week. Here's what you need to know. Greatness in the Father's eyes. It's in His eyes. For all the people that you think are great, for all the people that you think are wonderful, the celebrities that you watch on TV, the rock stars that you see playing at all these concerts, the Hollywood movie stars that are on the silver screen, there's a day coming in which we won't know their names anymore. They'll be forgotten. And you know who will be celebrated? We don't know who they are right now. Most likely they're off in some totally obscure part of the world, completely forgotten by the media, completely unheard of by the broader evangelical Christian movement. They don't have Facebook likes. They don't have Twitter followers. They're not on the speaking circuits. They're not popular. We don't clap for them. We don't even know who they are. And I'm telling you, there's a day coming which a person will rise to glory and sit at the right hand of the Father, and we won't even know who that guy ever was because he delighted to serve in the most remote most isolated, most thrown away, farthest flung part of the earth to love some very difficult people in some very hostile environment, to love those people because they were worthy of God's love in the Father's eyes, which made them worthy in His eyes. And that's a man who's a great man. My prayer for you is that you would be great like that man. Let's bow for a word of prayer.